Welcome to Boiled Down, the podcast for the Oregon Restaurant Lodging Association. I am your host, Greg Astley, Director of Government Affairs. This is a bonus episode where we're going to talk about the state of the industry, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Orla's president and CEO, Jason Brandt. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Greg. Great to be here on the podcast. Thanks so much for being the host for these. Yeah, you know, I love doing this, and I know we're both busy, but uh, getting this kind of information out to the operators out there is incredibly important, and hopefully people have some time to, to listen to these, and of course, they can also contact us or their member reps with any questions that they might, might have about what's going on out there. So um, let's dive right in. Um, let's talk about the state of the industry right now. Let's talk about things like uh, openings and, and closings and, and the churn rate that's happening with restaurants right now. Sure. Yeah, it's been a, a year of suffering for sure. And all of our colleagues and our friends out there in the restaurant and the lodging industry uh, can truly sympathize with that. We have friends, we have family, we have loved ones that um, have lost everything. Uh, others that have lost part of you know the dream they've built over decades. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in this industry, whether you've been in it for decades, like a number of folks uh, who testified today in, in one of our recent public hearings uh, to back up the industry, or whether you just started out in the restaurant industry a few years ago, and then boom, COVID became a household name. And all of a sudden you're wondering what the hell you got into, right? So um, a lot of concerns across the board and, and truly a mixed bag of business models, both on the restaurant and the lodging side that have created different realities for different operators. Uh, couple that with all the different restrictions and how often those change in each county throughout the state. And you got uh, one heck of a problem on your hands that's been lasting for almost a year now. So um, our hands are full at Orla, as you well know, Greg, and um, opening and closing is definitely something we can talk about. I do want to kind of focus in first on what we hear most often um, at Orla, which is number one, um, the, the impossible nature of this two-week open and close rigmarole. Uh, we call it the two-week yo-yo um, amongst the Orla staff. But this concept that, you know, congregate living facilities or uh, places that have absolutely no connection to restaurants uh, universities, for example, people having gatherings when they're college students, uh, the list goes on and on where transmission is, is happening on a regular basis. And then we're penalized as if, you know, we're the child that, that somehow got caught in the act. We had absolutely nothing to do with those increases in transmission. And it's just, it's driving people across the state absolutely nuts and rightfully so. Uh, when you have, you know, increases in robust testing at U of O or OSU, or if you have people that are, you know, getting, getting COVID in, in warehouse facilities or manufacturing plants, and that directly impacts your ability to open your restaurant business, which had no COVID transmission, you're, you're bound to get a little hot under the collar. Let's just put it that way. So we're trying to smooth out the edges of the open and close stuff right now. And I'm, I'm not cautiously optimistic yet, but as we sit here talking, uh, I do think that our, our points are being heard a little bit more uh, as of just the last couple of days with the Oregon Health Authority. We'll see what happens there, but um, I'm convinced that more people are starting to realize outside of our industry that this open and close situation every two weeks is just not going to work. It's not realistic. It's going to be very hard to keep people following these rules 
if they don't feel there's any justification or rationale for the rules themselves. So um, hopefully we make some more progress to get rid of this open, closed, two-week yo-yo situation we find ourselves in. Well, and Jason, I think we're seeing more uh, more publicly, and, and it's being uh, published in the media, I think, more the frustration and even the desperation that some of those operators out there are feeling. Um, we're seeing these instances where uh, OSHA is coming in and having to uh, issue fines because restaurants are open, uh, despite the fact that maybe their county doesn't allow them to be open for indoor dining. But really, when you talk to those operators, they've reached a point where they don't see any other path forward. I mean, they're, they're to that point of wanting to provide for their employees and, and not knowing any other way to do it other than just to open up because they know they can be safe. They can, they can clean and sanitize. And, um, but, but we are seeing more of that in, in the public eye, right? Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a real tough spot uh, for, for us, for those restaurants uh, the reality is you're going to be given a lot of benefit of the doubt if you're doing your absolute best to keep your business intact and follow the rules to the best of your ability. But if you're being, if you're being brazen about uh, not following the rules and you're going to be willfully negligent, then it's clear that the OLCC and Oregon OSHA are dropping the hammer. I mean, there's fines that are coming for friends of ours, and we hate to see that. Uh, we remain committed at Orla to make sure that, you know, we fight hard within the confines of the law to get changes made so that you don't have to make that impossible decision to open up against the rules or against the law. So our job is to help those that are in power understand the importance of changing the law in practical and realistic ways. And so our, po our folks can open up their places and not have to worry about that hammer coming down um, because they're being willfully negligent. So yeah, there's there's winners and losers. We've talked about that across uh, across this last year, um, and there are those that have chosen to open up because they just have lost respect for the process. And we do our best to try to make sure restaurants do whatever they can to to work within the margins. And for some people, uh, they just choose to disagree with that approach and, and they go their own way. Yeah, and I know that you and I and the rest of the team at Orla have felt that same level of frustration as we've tried to advocate uh, for the industry. Um, but we, we have had some success. I mean, certainly there have been struggles um, and we're not at a place where we would like to be. Um, but we have been able to, to get some, I guess, if, if you want to call them wins. Um, but let's talk about that for a minute. What are some of the things that we've been able to do to help the industry kind of get itself back to a place where we can try to survive? Yeah, I, you know, I go straight to relief funds, uh, a lot of the work at the national level with our national partners, both uh, the American Hotel and Lodging Association, the National Restaurant Association, the Asian American Hotel Owners Association. These are three incredibly important partners of us working hard for hospitality in DC. And then of course, uh, the tens of millions of dollars that we've been able to secure in relief packages. Um, so everyone I think at this point is, is pretty familiar with the process of refreshing web pages to try to get your hands on some grant money, whether that's at the local level or at the state level or somewhere in between and just trying to get that money in the bank to help with cash flow. So yeah, we've been uh, directly involved in securing tens of millions of dollars for hospitality industries uh, here in Oregon, outside of 
all of the work that's been done uh, at the national level for payroll protection program dollars, um, the extended benefits of those in round two for hospitality, which was uh, quite meaningful. I mean, uh, the three and a half times monthly payroll based on your 2019 payroll uh, for hospitality uh, means usually for most of our folks, tens of thousands of dollars compared to other businesses that um, only have access in round two to two and a half times payroll. So the difference between two and a half and three and a half typically equates to tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so that's a huge win. Um, you know, there's other things too um, that we've been working on for throughout this last year. We, of course, were appointed by the governor to be involved in, in her economic advisory council. Um, there were five business representatives on that. And so that, that was an important role. It, it led into some subcommittee work that allowed us before the two-week freeze hit during Thanksgiving time. And then we came out of the two-week freeze and we have these four risk categories, which, you know, many of us are, are you know, continue to be very frustrated by. But before that, before the two-week freeze, uh, there were months of operation there that were actually working quite well for a number of our folks. Not, not the best scenario, but given we were living in a pandemic, you know, things that we were able to negotiate that were completely different from other states. One that I think we were the only state, I think, in the entire country to have this for months on end. But this idea that you don't need to base your capacity on a percentage of, of what your maximum capacity is from a fire code standpoint, but um, the amount of people that have chosen to dine together in associated parties of 10 or less being physically distanced from the next associated party of 10 or less, you do that and, and you make sure there's six feet of distance between all those associated parties and whatever, however many people and customers you're able to serve, you're able to, that's your maximum capacity. A lot of our folks truly loved that difference in how we approach things initially here in Oregon versus other states. Um, so I, I would consider that maybe a smaller win, but I'm convinced that that translated into um, additional sales that um, we potentially wouldn't have access to if we just had a arbitrary percentage capacity like we have to deal with now in our four risk categories. And of course, we're you know pushing for uh, action by our legislature. We're supposed to have three equal branches of government, but you know throughout the last year. Uh, the, the legislators working for us, our 90 elected leaders in the state house and state Senate have really had um, their power um, taken away from them to, to a large extent. So we have not been operating in a true democracy as far as I'm concerned. It's been uh, executive authority for almost a full year now. Um, as of today, that executive authority was extended all the way until May 2nd. So we are officially uh, in a world in Oregon where uh, we do not have three equal branches of government. We have the executive branch. We have uh, opportunities to fight for justice for our, for our folks in our industry in a court of law through the judicial branch. And then we have um, a legislative branch that um, has extreme limits on their authority until we get through the other end of this health emergency. So it's it's truly unlike anything we've ever seen and uh, got a lot of work to do to continue mobilizing our legislators and try to uh, make sure that that democratic process is, is put back in place 
where we truly do, again, have three equal branches of government for Oregonians. Yeah, and Orla has been active in, in all three of those branches. I know, Jason, you mentioned the uh, Economic Advisory Council that was early on uh, part of the governor's office, and you are in regular contact with the governor's staff on a weekly basis. Um, we have also, uh, as you mentioned, the legislative piece. We've got a few bills in there to try to help with this. Uh, we also took action uh, judicially. Uh, we had a, a lawsuit um, and we have a legal defense fund. So can you can you talk a little bit about that legal defense fund and, and why Orla decided to put something like that on the board? Yeah, it, you know, it was very clear to us that we needed to have more levers to pull for folks that did want to pursue um, their opportunities in, in the court of law. So we we're actually in real time right now looking at a number of different options for how we could pursue court cases. It's it's a little challenging, though, because, you know, throughout this whole pandemic, restaurants and lodging establishments, unless you were on the coast or in Hood River and a local municipality closed you down for a certain period of time, with that being the exception, no one actually had to physically close all aspects of their business model. So the government, although they forced our dining rooms to close, and they've done it more than once over the last year, depending on what county the restaurant's located in, um, that was done for the public interest, but it wasn't a taking of your property because you could still do to go take out delivery, um, all those kind of secondary ancillary sales maneuvers to, to try to keep your business afloat. So, and then also of course, outdoor dining as well. Um, so the legal defense fund is there, Greg, just to make sure that our folks know that if we have a viable legal strategy and our law firm feels we have a shot at winning a case, we have a fund to take care of that legal bill on behalf of that restaurant or lodging operator, go to court and hopefully secure that win. And that's our uh, best attempt to uh, kind of amplify the power of the judicial branch outside of the executive branch, while also working with our legislators during this current session uh, to, try to try to get bills passed for hospitality so as many hotels, lodging establishments, restaurants can survive this pandemic as possible. And we've focused a lot, Jason, on, on restaurants because that's where a lot of the focus is in, in the media and in the public's eye. Obviously, uh, executive orders completely shutting down restaurants or only allowing them to do takeout delivery. But on the lodging side, a lot of people forget that they were the ones really initially impacted because of travel restrictions, uh, because of the gathering size limitations, you know, suddenly events like conferences and large weddings, uh, uh, big events like that were canceled as well. And it's been kind of an up and down year for uh, a lot of the, the partners on the lodging side. I know that uh, the Portland Hilton, for example, was closed all of 2020 once we, we kind of shut down in March. Um, but we've also had instances where the wildfires uh, created opportunities for lodging establishments to house some of those that were displaced working with the counties and FEMA uh, and Orla being a part of coordinating that effort. Uh, the most recent ice storm, uh, when hundreds of thousands of people went without power, uh, those folks were moving into hotels temporarily to have some heat uh, and some shelter uh, from that. And so um, can we talk a little bit about what's happened on the, on the lodging side as well and, and, and how this year has impacted them? Yeah, it's it's been a year of volatility for our friends in the lodging industry, similar to restaurants, just in a little bit of a different way. 
Um, the weather-related incidents certainly created a situation where rooms were needed. And so as they're fighting for occupancy for business and leisure travel, business has just dropped off the map. I mean, there's so little business travel. So the closer you get to Portland Metro or other metro regions that are, you know, that have lodging establishments that are really built for, for business meetings and conferences, uh, the closer you get to those locations, the harder hit they are. You know, they're trying to maintain bricks and mortar expense um, that's related to higher sales related to that, that group business. And the group business is simply not there yet. The leisure travel markets in Oregon is kind of a whole different story. Um, so along the coast, Southern Oregon, Central Oregon, these markets uh, have a little bit of survivor's guilt uh, to some extent because they've benefited quite a bit from road trips. Uh, people along the West Coast uh, getting out to the coast or going out to Bend or, or going down into Southern Oregon. And that's really helped them recover uh, to, to a large extent, but they're still dealing with losses that they incurred during the shelter in place timeframe. So, you know, think back spring of 2020, that was rough sledding. It didn't matter where you were, you were, you were in deep crisis mode as a lodging establishment um, throughout the state. And it got worse the closer you got to Portland. Portland still uh, has a lot of work ahead. Uh, we got to get our image back on track. There's a lot of leaders that are focused on that up there. We have our our Portland Kitchen Cabinet Group for restaurants, our Portland Lodging Alliance for lodging operators. Uh, and, and these are leaders that are committed to doing their part to step up and, and get Portland back on track. Um, as many people have said before, and I think it's, it's relatively true, as Portland goes, so does the state. So we open up the gates uh, to Portland International Airport, um, to kind of the, the largest metro area in Oregon. Other markets are bound to see a uh, positive impact from that influx once we get demand back up at the levels that we need it to be at. So, you know, there's there's a few things that come to mind for lodging just off the top of my head. Number one, the scheduling law. Um, that's impossible in a year like the one we've had. So we've had some very um, productive conversations with the bully commissioner, Val Hoyle. Uh, and Val, I got to give her credit. She's been doing a great job reaching out to our industry, um, engaging in open conversation, and and frankly, bringing common sense to the table uh, when it comes to what rules to enforce and which ones don't make sense given the state of the emergency. And, and scheduling is certainly not a priority because we want to put as many people on the schedule as we can. And the demand is just so volatile, it's impossible to know how to do that in a way um, that passes the smell test, even though you're doing your best to, to make it work with covid in your mind at all times. Uh, a couple other things too, uh, you know, now that we're in these four risk categories since late November, um, you know, the extreme risk category, which many counties were living in for far longer than anyone anticipated, um, they needed some touch-ups, I would say. And we got some touch-ups for restaurants and lodging. But the biggest one I think is, is getting some of those amenities back online, right? Like your hotel fitness center so that an overnight guest can go in and get their workout in. Um, before we got that change, it was closed. You couldn't use it. Uh, maybe that's enticing to a couple people to stay overnight. Um, your hot tub, your, your pool, if you have amenities like this, you can, even if you're in the extreme risk category, this has kind of been green lit, uh, so to speak, where you don't have to worry about 
you know, what risk category you're in, you're always going to be able to have a reservation system for these amenities and use them as tools in your toolkit to try to get people to take those road trips and stay with you overnight. Those are just a few that come to mind, but it's really great to see so much of the state on a, a decent path uh, to getting more heads and beds again, but we still have a lot of work to do in the I-5 corridor in Portland, the ice storms and the wildfires that you mentioned, Greg, that certainly helped fill up rooms, but that's a point in time, uh, certainly a business that's helpful. Um, and then also something that's frustrating to me, frankly, is shots that we're getting that we're taking for uh, price gouging. Um, not a huge fan of that, frankly. I, our industry, as many people know that would be listening to this, is similar to the airline industry. We don't have some big bad business person sitting behind a dark desk, you know, laughing in an evil way, changing prices on people that are in emergencies. That's not a thing. And these are algorithms that are built into our software systems. You know, as demand goes up, so does price. And so just like an airline ticket, when there's only a few seats left on the airline, same thing with hotels and motels. There's a couple rooms left, the price goes up. But to just call out our industry after a year of suffering saying, you know, shame on us as an industry for price gouging is ridiculous. And there's a lot of people that are frustrated by that and rightfully so. Um, we have the opportunity to go in and fix those systems, but you got to do it manually. You got to kind of override the algorithms, if you will, to make sure you're doing right by those that are in emergency need and, and need shelter at a reasonable price. And we certainly always want to be there to protect the, the importance of those reasonable prices. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of Bully Commissioner Val Hoyle, uh, you had the opportunity actually to do some invited testimony with her on Senate Bill 1701, um, which allowed some flexibility for employees to pick up shifts without sacrificing their own employment insurance. And I know that was important for a lot of the operators out there as they wanted to bring people back, but the unemployment insurance uh, coupled with what the federal government was offering this last summer uh, was too much in some cases for them to really come back to work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we're still working through some technicalities there after getting support in one of our special sessions. And, and that was that was a pleasure to work on with Commissioner Hoyle. Um, but we still got to work through a few details there to make sure it works the way it should. But in essence, the idea is, you know, we don't need to make it harder on people that are going through rough times, picking up partial hours uh, at their place of work by taking away uh, a proportional share of their unemployment. We should be able to get our employees to come back in, take a couple more part-time shifts and still provide that baseline support that unemployment is there, there for, uh, for situations just like this. So it was, it was kind of a win-win for both employers that were having a tough time getting workers to pick up a couple more shifts because they were fearful of having a reduction in their unemployment when they needed it to survive. And it's also, of course, helpful to the employee because now they can take those shifts and, and not have that detrimental impact when they're trying to look holistically at how they can keep on putting food on the table. So um, that was a natural for us to partner with uh, Bolion and Commissioner Hoyle on and um, still working on that a little bit um, with the Oregon Employment Department just to make sure that the way it passed the special session um, actually ends up resulting in this taking place as much as it's needed out there for both workers and for those operators. Well, I know that can always be part of the challenge. The intention is there, but the execution 
sometimes falls short. So uh, I'm glad that we're staying on top of that. That's not the only help that uh, employees and workers got this year, though. The Oregon, well, the Orla Education Foundation not only went through a name change, but also pivoted a little bit in their mission. Um, can you talk about the changes that happened there and some of the good works that Wendy Popkin, the executive director, her board and the foundation have been doing? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, you know, we, we like to call it the softer side of Orla because we've been sitting here talking a lot about uh, politics, but our charitable 501c3 foundation uh, used to be called Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association Education Foundation, uh, kind of a mouthful. Um, Wendy, as our executive director, kind of shepherded the, the board of directors for the foundation um, through a process of, of restructuring so that we could be there a little bit more and serving vulnerable populations uh, by, by cutting checks for restaurants that are feeding vulnerable populations. Um, the official name now is the Oregon Hospitality Foundation. And yeah, we're, I mean, one of the things I'm most impressed with that Wendy spearheaded is a new online training program. And you can access that through the main page of Orla's website. Just make a small donation to the foundation. The value is way bigger than um, the, the minimal donation that's needed. So uh, lots of really great videos there to really showcase how safety should work and and can work in our hospitality locations. There's a restaurant version, there's a lodging version. It also comes in Spanish. So having the chance to go through the courses myself and take a look at them, I, I was just super impressed with uh, the intentionality in creating these new video on-demand courses from scratch uh, to really provide our frontline workers some video training products that they can take seriously and, and incorporate in their customer service approach especially at a time when they're dealing with customers that have constant anxiety and fear and, um, you know, worries about what the future holds as, as we continue to wrestle with our vaccination pace and, and try to get to the other side of this thing. So uh, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. I mean, it's great work by the foundation and, and hats off to Wendy. Yeah, the foundation was also able to do some fundraising throughout the year. Uh, the dinner and a movie I know was a huge success uh, the directors of Phoenix, Oregon came on. Uh, there was a virtual showing and uh, people could donate. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think it's something like over 11,000 meals to date have been provided because of the funds that the Oregon Hospitality Foundation has been able to raise. Is that right? Yeah, there's thousands and thousands of meals. I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how many, but yeah, I mean, Wendy's cut some pretty big checks from the foundation directly to restaurants to cover the meals that have been given to vulnerable populations. And um, so she's been using the, the proceeds that have been raised from dinner and a movie and, and through other sponsors to make sure that that money goes to good, good things and, and to a good use, especially in, in so many people's time of need out there throughout Oregon. Well, we've talked a lot about the advocacy that, that we've done, the, the path that we've been taking, and, and obviously bringing in revenue is a huge part of it. But in addition, you know, trying to cut some of the costs that operators have is a huge part of that equation as well. And we had a, a, a great announcement early on, um, not related to COVID, obviously, but in partnership with uh, Safe Corporation, uh, we were able to offer a pretty significant discount. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the better our group performs um, within our workers' comp program, the, the better our discount looks as we move into each calendar year. 
So right now we kind of have a, a historic 21% discount for those operators out there that qualify for this program. And it's exclusively through Orla and through your membership in, in our state association. So 21% is a big deal for a lot of folks when they're looking at their annual premium for a workers comp, which of course is required by law. So you can run the numbers on that. And for most folks, if they qualify for the program, it, it pays for most of an Orla membership, if not for the entire thing, just in the discount alone. So it makes a lot of sense. Uh, we are kind of diligent and focused in on making sure that we do whatever we can to promote safety in the workplace and amplify the, the training programs that Safe Corporation provides. Because uh, again, the stronger we, we perform from a safety standpoint, the better that discount is. It's an incentive to do a great job in our hospitality workplaces across the state. Um, so I'm, I'm jazzed about it because it's continued to go up. Um, and this is the third year we've had the program. And it seems like every year we're getting a little bit stronger as a group and our safety record goes up a little bit more. And, and that means savings at a time when restaurant and hotels probably could, could use it more than ever. Well, Jason, you and I know we don't do this work alone. Uh, it's important for our volunteer leaders that step up, uh, be a part of this, the folks on our board, our government affairs committee, People that testified, as you mentioned earlier today, in front of the legislature on, on bills. Um, one of the things that I know if we pick our heads up and, and try to look ahead to the future just a little bit that I'm excited about is the leadership that we see in a program like uh, the Oregon Tourism Leadership Academy. And I know there were some uh, bumps in the first year because of the COVID pandemic, but um, can you just briefly talk a little bit about that program and, and what Orla and its partners are hoping to accomplish? Yeah, sure. Um, we're, at, as far as we know, the second state in the country behind Colorado that's created a leadership development program that's targeted for tourism professionals. And this kind of falls into three different buckets of professionals, those that work in local governments or maybe state government, but have a responsibility for tourism. Um, those that work in nonprofits that are in the business of promoting tourism and marketing communities and regions. And then, of course, the folks that are our members and, and non-members throughout the state that are actually running hospitality or tourism-related businesses in the private sector, and they're doing it for profit. So you, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to take all of these people from different walks of life that are located in different parts of the state and every year we want to put 20 of them together uh, for in-person experiences. And we have four multi-day experiences that are customized for this program and for these participants every year. And it's been challenging for sure this first year. We've had two of our four in-person experiences so far. Um, we have two more planned that have had to, be had to be delayed because of COVID. And then we're launching year two. Um, as well this summer while we're kind of finishing up year one because of the delays. But the, the response from those that are in the program that kind of represent those different buckets, municipalities, nonprofits, for-profits that are tied to tourism, um, the response has really been um, kind of off the charts, frankly. We're very fortunate in our consultant with the program. Her name's Michelle Leadham. We also have had some very fierce conversations about the things that are facing us in this world, um, being honest with ourselves about what our responsibility is um, 
and lifting up underserved populations and underrepresented populations, um, being honest with ourselves about what else we can do to make sure we're providing every opportunity for people of all walks of life uh, to, to meet their dreams and, and kind of reach that next level of excellence in, in whatever they choose to do in our industry. And as one of the most diverse industries in Oregon, um, I think we have a really big responsibility to lead in this space. And uh, so we have to continue challenging ourselves. We've got to make sure we're not complacent as a staff at Orla and that we're doing our part to reach out, get out of our comfort zone, uh, build new relationships, and make sure that this Tourism Academy program represents the fabric of Oregon, you know, taking these talents and skills of these individuals, uh, making it something that that's way bigger than any of those individuals could maybe accomplish on their own. So the power of these group leadership programs where everyone has this common interest in building Oregon and making it super impressive and, and strong for, for all those that have a chance to experience our state. Uh, I'm just, I'm highly optimistic about what it's going to mean long-term for our industry. So we'll remain very dedicated to, uh, to keeping the program alive and well. We're excited to announce the next class. So we're reviewing applications coming up here um, in March, and we'll be announcing the second year class of the Oregon Tourism Academy in the month of April. And then they're off to the races. They're going to be meeting in person for the first time in late July. So excited about all that. Yeah, there's a lot of amazing people that work in our industry, and it's it's really great to see them coming together in a program like that to help secure the future of the industry. And so um, really great work that you guys are doing on that. I, I, I appreciate it and applaud it. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of different topics here. Uh, as we wrap this up, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think it would be important for folks to know out there? Well, I just, I want people to try to find that bright light at the end of the tunnel in their mind, because it's, it would be really easy to, to get bogged down by all the depression that's kind of been constant in this last year, but gosh, I I'm, I'm getting pretty bullish about what the future looks like. I, I'm getting pretty excited about uh, what might be possible. You think about uh, kind of the, the perfect storm in a good way that's been created. I mean, savings rates have really skyrocketed. People are sitting on uh, piles of cash and people's, a part of people's souls have been taken away from them for the last year. Uh, this idea that they have to be careful about, about going out there for their next adventure, their next overnight stay. They have to be careful about going out and dining out and, and being with loved ones or friends or, or reconnecting with people they might not have seen for the last year. So, you know, we got the cash, savings are there. People feel like they've lost a piece of who they are because they haven't had us as a part of the equation in the way that we're there to serve them. So what happens with all of that? I think probably some really, really awesome stuff. So for those, for those that we've, we've lost permanently, uh, it's, a, it's a true tragedy. And I know in my professional career, I'll never forget about the degree of that loss and how tough that is to swallow. Um, but on the other end, for those that have been able to, to find that grit and power through and have been hanging on by their fingertips, I think it's going to be worth it. I'm, and I'm really excited about it. I love the optimism, Jason. I think that's a great note for us to end on. So I want to thank you again for your time. Um, and as always, you, you know, people can reach out to us, uh, jbrant at oregonrla.org or askplea at oregonrla.org. If you 
If you have questions, concerns, opinions you want to share, uh, we appreciate it. But uh, once again, my name is Greg Aspley, Director of Government Affairs for the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association. Thanks again to Jason Brandt, the President and CEO of Orla, for being my guest. And thanks for listening.